0: This morning, I would like for us to work through Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, and the reason I'd like to do that is only because I believe that the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, is so essential in our times, and of course, the world has to lose sight of that. They would never deem it essential, Uh, yet we have to be reminded thereof because when we see who god has called us to be we will recognize the purpose that he called us together for in this world i mean there's one thought as to why did god not just save you and then immediately take you to be with him why is he leaving you in this world because he has called you to be a light and that's exactly what we're going to see but society today uh has a very comprehensive onslaught against what God has put in place in order to protect man from evil. The world is being flooded with darkness. The Bible says that men hated light and they loved darkness. And we see how there's this comprehensive attempt to overthrow what God has established. And there are these perimeters that God has drawn, these borders that God has put up, these restraints that God has put together in order to push evil out of the world. And we see MacArthur has been, John MacArthur has been outlining this over and over and over again on secular news. And I think it's important for us to also see this, understand this, because it is scriptural. But we see that the very first restraint that God has erected in order to push evil out of man's life and out of our societies and communities is conscience. Every one of us have a conscience. We were born with this conscience and uh, Romans chapter 1 tells us that every man already knows that God exists. The Bible says that anybody who says that there is no God is a fool and he knows that he's lying. All you need to do is you need to look at the universe and you will know that there is a creator. Just like when you look at a painting and it proves to you that there has to be, therefore, a painter. Or you look at a building and you can conclude that therefore, there has to, therefore, be a builder. You look at creation and it concludes that there has to, therefore, be a creator. But Romans chapter 1 says that man... Although he knows that there is a God, suppresses the truth of God, and therefore God delivers him over to his own passions. But man has a conscience, and conscience works like this. Your conscience works like this. That it will accuse you or excuse you based on the highest truth that it has ever been exposed to. That is the first restraint of evil that God erects second restraint of evil that God has erected is the family. He gave the family a father, an authority figure, a mother, a nurturer. And gave that family the rod to drive foolishness from the heart of a child. This was a restraint that God put in place in order to protect family from the flood of evil and flood of darkness. The third restraint that God put in place in order to push evil out of the world is the government or the police. The Bible says that they are God's ministers, ministering wrath to the evildoer. And the government was given, or the police was given, the sword, the Bible says, the instrument of death, which is really a gun in our vernacular. And then the fourth restraint that God has placed in the world in order to push evil out of society, is the church. He didn't just save you and then immediately take you out of this world because He had a purpose for you in this world, and that is to be part of this church, this collective light that shines and reveals God's truth. And so this light pushes darkness out from this world. But if you think about it, these four restraints that were put into place by God, the conscience, the family, police... And the church, all for those restraints, are receiving great onslaught from a very secular, secularized world, a very pagan world. Because number one, the conscience has been corrupted by eliminating this from, from the school to start off with. You can almost read absolutely anything except for scriptures in the schools, right? And your conscience is constructed by the highest... Truth it's ever been exposed to, and that truth through your conscience accuses you or excuses you from what you are about to do. You see, your conscience does not give light, your conscience is what allows light to come in. I'll give you an example this light in the roof right here is actually produces light, but if you have a skylight, the skylight doesn't produce light, the skylight just allows light to filter through. Your conscience is like a skylight. It allows whatever light you, you, expo- you are exposed to, that light shines and accuses or accuses, excuses or accuses you based on what you are choosing to do in your life. But through psychology, bad counseling, this world has systematically seared consciences. Actually, it's it's almost like frowned upon to feel guilty for anything you do. You ought not to feel guilty. Even churches preach that that is the voice of the devil. (laughs) When when in fact, if the Word of God is going to hold you accountable through your conscience, your conscience ought to be alive to this authority that it's been exposed to, right? But if you are constantly told, you should never feel guilt, well then, what we've done is we've raised spiritual psychopaths. A psychopath is somebody that can just murder a family member, a mother or a father or a grandmother, and then go have a cup of coffee and feel nothing. Feel nothing. Why? Because their conscience has been absolutely seared and destroyed. But instead, God has called us to have soft hearts, sensitive hearts, towards the very standards of God, the very Word of God. That's why sometimes people can now hear the Word of God and they go like, yeah, well, my experience isn't that. All I know is that I know how, I how I, I know what I've experienced. To them, that becomes truth instead of the truth that filters through the skylight called the conscience that holds them accountable, accuses or excuses them based on this high truth that they've been exposed to. So the conscience has been crippled The moment the conscience was crippled, not just through psychology, but also now through preaching, suddenly more darkness entered. Then came this second restraint, which is the family. And the family was given a rod, and the rod was taken away from the family legally. It's now become illegal for most part to actually drive foolishness from the heart of a child by using the rod. The family, as you know, has been dismantled. We even now have shows like Modern Family, where it's no longer anything close to what the Bible says a family looks like. And the moment the family was attacked and successfully dismantled, more darkness flooded in. And now, Satan put his target on the next restraint in society, which is police, of course. The Bible says very, very clearly that They do not bear the sword in vain. But they are God's ministers to minister wrath unto the evildoer. Now, that's not a perfect system. Yet, that was God's position for them. Just like husbands aren't perfect husbands, yet that's God's position for them. Just like ministers aren't perfect people, but this is God's position for them. Just like moms in the house, They aren't perfect, but that's God's position for them. And they need to be honored. So we need to honor the Father. So we need to honor positions of authority that's been erected by God, including the Father, including uh, the police officer. So just as the conscience was taken away, so the rod was taken away, and now the gun is taken away, or the sword is taken away, and now Satan's final target is upon the final restraint, which is the church. So churches aren't deemed essential necessarily. As a matter of fact, uh, J.D. Greer from the Southern Baptist Convention, which is, you know, you look at the Southern Baptist Convention, you would think like, well, here's the last frontier, you know, they're standing. Well, no, they just declared their churches, at least some of their flagship churches, won't be opening until January. So that means their churches have been shut down for almost an entire year. 47,000 churches belong to the Southern Baptist Convention, and their main churches are just almost shut for an entire year. And those that do want to open aren't allowed to sing. And you see that, you see that, that how. You know, I saw, this, I saw this meme, not that you should take your, your, any directives from, from what you see on Facebook or anything, but you see this crammed in, uh, uh, all these people crammed into a, an airplane, and then you see the sanctuary with two and a half, 3,000 seats empty. That's allowed, that's not allowed. So you have to ask a question like, is this real? Well, I mean, you know, in, in a logical mind, it's kind of strange, isn't it? kind of strange. And it almost appears that when you look at what's happened in California with Grace Community Church, they've won all the courts, all the battles in the court though. However, as you look at what happened there, you think that is kind of strange how extremely strict the guidelines have been when it comes to churches but so extremely loosely knit when it comes to everything else including casinos including you know whether it be flying around or getting onto buses or shopping or when it comes to anything else like abortion clinics or when you know I mean if you just think about the amount of people that are that, are, that die because of alcohol related deaths alcohol related deaths uh, yet it's completely legal or Smoking or secondhand smoke, and it's completely illegal. And when it comes to pot, which was illegal just a few months ago, now it's essential somehow, more essential than even the church. And and so you you have to go like, okay, well, what's going on? We see these restraints all getting toppled over. Whether it's the conscience, first guilt's taken away. Number two, you see, first, secondly, the rod is taken away, the family's crippled. And number three, you see that the police is being defunded and the guns are taken away everywhere and then number four now you wonder what's going on with the church but we have to see what Jesus says about you the church collectively so I'd like for us to turn to Matthew chapter 5 if you have your Bible Matthew chapter 5 and um, we're going to start reading verse 14 through 16 verse 14 through 16 This is Jesus sitting, and He's teaching the multitudes. He says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Everything we read right there has to do with how you, the church, will ultimately glorify the Father. He says again... Let your light shine before men Before men, in such a way, there's a specific way your light needs to shine, that they may see, the world may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. They will glorify our Father in heaven when they see your good works. So it is my goal today to discover exactly what Jesus meant by calling us the light of the world. I have read over that portion throughout my life, my Christian life, and skimmed over it without necessarily defining exactly what that is. You are the light of the world. What does this mean? And how can I shine this light that God has commanded me to shine through good works? In other words, what light and what good works makes me shine before man and so glorify God. Can I just tell you how important that is? Not just because this world is getting ever increasing darker, darker and darker, but also because ultimately you and I have one purpose and we have a common purpose and that is to glorify God. Every one of us, no matter what, we've, no matter what career path we've chosen, we have been called to glorify god as teachers as doctors we have been called to glorify god even as sportsmen it doesn't matter what we do this is the common goal and purpose for our lives so here it says if we know to shine a light before men by the good works if we just knew what these were god would be glorified and we'd fulfill our purpose in life So let's talk through this and see what Jesus meant by what he said. First, we need to understand that Jesus does not give them an option. He didn't say, well, for those mature ones around here, not the Christian, the disciple. He didn't make any distinction. He said, he he told everybody that you are the light of the world, all of his followers, and he gave them no option. He does not ask them to work at becoming a light. He simply, emphatically tells them, You are the light of this world. Period. <laughs> That's who you are. Without you, there is no light. The church is essential. He didn't ask him to become the light. He tells them they already are. So there's no debate regarding this. Jesus did not look for their input. He didn't ask them what they would like to one day do when they grow up. He simply told them, this is how things are. There are two basic ways Scripture can be handled. And we want to handle the Scripture in one very specific way there's the exegesis way of studying scriptures and then there's the eisegesis the word exegesis essentially means to draw meaning out of like you take like you go to a well and you're drawing water out of a well so to exegete a scripture is to draw out of that scripture the author's original intent to exegete it's to determine intent by reading and understanding Scripture through the lens of original context. Original context. Not modern context. Original context. Original history, history and the setting of it, the entirety of, the, of that specific portion of Scripture is taken into consideration in order to exegete or pull out of that Scripture the author's original intent. Now, so that means you come to that verse with a blank page you don't come to that verse with your personal experience. No. Folks, we come, to that, we come to that verse with a blank page. Okay, God, my opinions, my experiences, my subjective truths, truths that are subject to my experiences, subject to my opinions, subject to my, my feelings, those are all out the window. I come to that scripture with a blank page, and I say, what are you saying to me? right now forget who i am and what i've gone through no what is it that you are saying now we are exegeting a verse but to to come through the lens of an eisegesis perspective on scriptures is on the other hand is to impose upon a verse whatever experiences i've had or i impose upon that verse whatever opinion I have, I impose upon a verse whatever I am wanting for it to tell me so that it can affirm what I already believe or what I already desire and want. That's Jesus, and uh, that's not what we're going to do here, okay? So let's take this life purpose that Jesus gives us as His disciples, and let's exegete it one word at a time, and that way we can confidently grasp Jesus' original intent as to what He was telling us, when he gave us this portion of scriptures, okay? So let's start with his declaration, you are the light of this world. You are the light of this world. It is as if Jesus is pointing a finger at them and says, this isn't for anybody or everybody. I am not talking to them. I am talking to you. Philosophers, psychologists, he's saying, is not the light of this world. No, you are. Believers are the light of this world. Humanism, rationalism, pragmatism do not shine forth God's light. They do not shine forth God's truth. You do, Jesus is saying. It's you. Your voice, your life shines forth light. Political activists, social justice warriors, do not bring God's light to this world. Jesus said, You do. Believers, you are the ones that bring light. Our Lord Jesus is pointing his finger at you today, and he declares the same. You are the disciples today, and therefore you are the ones called to be to be the light in this world. So the question is: if we understand that, okay, well, it's not philosophers, it's not psychologists, it's not humanists, it's not rationalists, it's not pragmatists, it's not politicians, it's not social justice warriors, well, it's not teachers, not educators, not professors. Uh, it's not pagan, Uh, it's not these great debaters. Who is bringing light on the world? You are. Okay, well then, what did Jesus have in mind when He defined you as a light? That's the next obvious question. What did He mean by you are the light? What were these disciples supposedly like if they were light? Well, here's where exegesis really helps us understand what Jesus meant by what He said. The you that He refers to right here is everybody previously mentioned in the the portion of Scripture right before it. So, He outlines a whole profile of person, and then He says, now you, the ones I just outlined, you are their light. So, he introduces this person he refers to by t- by saying "you," who is that? Well, let's go back then and see what it is. See, we just read Matthew five fourteen, okay? But in Matthew five three through eleven, he outlines this person, this profile of a person who is the light. Matthew five three. Let's read it. Blessed are who the poor in spirit, not the economically poor, the poor in. Spirit, that's the first sign or profile of this person who is light. Number two, he says, blessed are those who mourn. That's the second characteristic of this person who is the light. The third is, blessed are the gentle. Fourth is, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's the fourth characteristic of a person who is the light. Blessed are the merciful, number five. Number six, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Number seven, blessed are the peacemakers. Number eight, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. So there we see the eight characteristics of this person that Jesus points to and He says, you, you, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are gentle, those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, those uh, uh, who are peacemakers between man and God, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Those are the ones that have what we call Beautiful attitudes that are part of the beatitudes attitudes that Jesus was teaching. The beautiful attributes, the beautiful attitudes. He just outlined them for us. And he says, you who are that, you are the light of this world. You who are who, who, who are poor in spirit, you who mourn your sin, you who are meek and submissive, you who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, you who are merciful, you who are peacemakers between man and God, and you who rejoice when persecuted for righteousness sake, you are a light in this world. Notice the second word Jesus' declaration is the word are. You are. You are the light of the world. It doesn't say you should be. It doesn't say you could be. Or you would be if. No. It says you are the light of the world. And Jesus is saying... I declare it <laughs> I'm, I am declaring this I am making sure of it I'm not choosing anybody else you are the light of this world not only is it a declaration of what will be true about them or is already true about them it's that this is they who this is going to be true of in other words he's saying all right out of everybody you are the ones. I've chosen you. You are it. The third word Jesus uses is the word the. You are the light of the world. The is a definite article. You are not a light. You are the light. There is no other. You are the only light in this world psychologists are not psychiatrists do not bring light (laughs) i know it's tough to swallow but you know you are the true light that reveals god's truth that's what light does if you walk into a dark room before you walk from one door to the other door, across the room, you switch the light on. Why? Because it needs to reveal to you where the pillars are, where the chairs are, and what way to take in order to get to the other side without hurting yourself. And so light reveals truth, actual truth, not psychological. But it's the truth. You are the Then he says, light. That's the fourth word, light. This word light indicates a witness. A witness. About two years ago, if you have children, you know what this is like. And if you have children and a dog, you know what that's like. (laughs) And we... Tina and I, we rush towards that moment where the dog's put away, the kids are in bed, I've told Gia her story. Every night she gives me a subject matter and I have to tell a story on that subject. Last night was the subject of pillow, pillow dad. So I had to create a whole story around a pillow that talked, all right? And every night, same thing then Robert and then eventually when everything is done Tina and I flop on the couch and we hope to spend a few moments together so about two years ago we got to that moment I was like so relieved everything is taken care of boxes were checked bam 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 faithful parent we are great let's sit down and flip through the channels I flopped down on the couch with Tina and I heard the screaming in my street It was like somebody was being attacked. Tina jumps up, I jump up, and she says, I'll get you the broom. Like, I'm going to wait for her to hand me a broom, and then I'm going to run out there with a broom and tell whoever is hurting somebody else to stop, right? And I'm like, (laughs) you know, uh, anyway, frustrated, I jumped up out of the couch, ran out the door, because now it's another thing that's going on before I can have me time, (laughs) I've realized, anyway. So I'm running down the street to where I'm hearing the sound, it's really dark, and there's the lady on the ground, and the dog's on top of her, a dog, and he's violently going at it. So I can't quite figure out what's going on. And I ran closer, it was like it was a pit bull, and I thought the pit bull actually had sunken his teeth into this lady's arm shoulder and back but I pulled the pit pit bull off of her and then I realized she was trying to protect a smaller little dog and in the meantime as the pit bull was going after the smaller dog it actually had ripped her arm open and there was blood everywhere and so um, I was scared that this pit bull was gonna turn on me right so I'm pulling the pit bull off and he's just going barking barking and she's screaming and everybody all the neighbors are coming out screaming And so I thought, well, okay, so maybe it calms down a little bit, and I let it go, and it just went straight at her again, and it just grabbed her again the second time. I grabbed it, pulled it away from her, and the neighbor had brought a rope, and we roped the dog to the tree. And um, long story short, almost two years later, which was about a month ago, I was um, a witness in court over this issue. And um, <clears throat> so now it's COVID. I'm sitting in Gia's room, pink everywhere and flowers everywhere, on Zoom as a witness in a court. I'm like, <laughs> weird, huh? How times have changed. And I'm giving the story, and in this court proceeding, I was required to shed light on how the event played out. As a witness, I had to flip the switch shed light on exactly what happened. You see, that is a witness. And a witness in a court of law brings certain details of the story together regarding the case so that they can make a judgment at the end of the day. You see, a light shines on something and illuminates it. It reveals something. It clarifies. It removes the smoke. All the questions are now being answered. A witness shines a light to illuminate, to reveal the truth about something. And you as a witness in this world, you are here to reveal and shine a light on the very truth of God, the knowledge of God regarding every issue in life. Man's greatest problem being sin And God's answer to that sin, which is Christ, who paid the penalty for that sin. We are lights that reveal the truth of God about man and about God's grace on how He will save man and what that actually looks like based on how the Bible describes it to us, not how we've experienced it in the past. So this is who you are. You are a witness. You are the light. You are the witness. You are God's light that shines in this dark world. In a world that is ignorant of God, you shine a light, revealing God's truth, God's knowledge, God's character, God's attribute, God's plan. And man's only possible hope for eternity. So, thus far, We have established that this is our mission given to us by Jesus. We are to shine forth the light of Christ. Not a light of psychology or philosophy or or humanism, rationalism, pragmatism, or any of the above, but a light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our cause. There's such a thing as mission drift. Ever heard of that term, mission drift? Makes sense, right? It's self-explanatory. Mission drift is when you're given a mission, but then other things happen and you get all entangled in other issues in life. That's why the Bible says the soldier does not entangle himself with the things of the world. No, he has got one thing in mind, and that is the enemy. Mission drift is when he gets entangled, like, like King David. <laughs> King David, he, he was, his mission drifted when he met Bathsheba when he didn't go to war, when he should have gone to war. But I'm concerned the church has drifted from her mission. She has entangled herself with the things of this world in such a way that she's actually missing being the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ that reveals who man is and what God has planned to do in order to make man compatible with the Holy God once again. You see, we are not a light that's supposed to highlight hardships. We are not a light that's supposed to highlight all man's problems. But a light that shines forth and reveals God's sovereign plan for saving sinful man from God's own wrath against man's sin. Jesus then, right after He says, You are the light of the world, He gives us two different pictures in order to show the disciples what He meant when He calls them to this mission. The first picture is a city on a hill. Let's read it. Matthew 5, 14, it says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. See, there is no mistake in what Jesus was attempting to communicate right here. His disciples are to be lit up like a city on a hill. Elevated for all to see. See, when a light is elevated on a hill, it is exposed. When a light is exposed, it becomes a beacon. It becomes a point of reference. That is what Jesus is saying to you today, church family. You are a city. You are a community of believers. You are a collection of lights. That God has positioned in this city, in this state, in this nation, in this world, at this time. That's who we are. And it is so that we can shine forth in this world as a witness. The second picture that Jesus gives us is a lamp on a lampstand. Matthew 5.15 says, Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. In other words, who would waste something expensive like, a, like oil in a lamp by making it of no use? Well, everybody is going to make the best use of the lamp they have by putting it on a lamp stand, elevating that lamp, putting it up high so it's more prominent, more central so that it can light up in a bigger way. Jesus is saying His disciples needed to put their light on this lampstand, on the most strategic place for maximum effect, for maximum exposure exposure. Jesus wants them to place it strategically for the greatest possible use. And then he says this: "And it gives life, light to all, and it gives light to all. It, singular, <coughs> gives light to all plural. One strategically elevated lamp that burns with, you know, God's light will light up all who are in the room. One strategically elevated light, one strategically prominent lamp, one lights all. You see, it only takes one. It takes you. We oftentimes, we've, be, we've become part of groupthink, right? So um, now, groups are, groups are guilty or groups are innocent. We don't think about the individual anymore, and this is a deception because, think of it this way, every single person will one day stand before God and give an account for his life. Every person will one day give an account for himself, not for everybody else. But this is the sin that originated in the garden. Because the moment God walked up on the scene and said, Adam, why are you hiding? He says, Well, it's because of that woman you gave me. (laughs) Well, Eve, what's your problem? Well, it's that snake. You see, when he said, that woman you gave me, he didn't blame the woman. He blamed God. He says, no, you gave that to me. You. Don't we see that a lot today in the world? Whether it is people blaming other people or they're blaming God ultimately. You see, God is the author of history. Otherwise, he wouldn't be sovereign, right? And if you have a problem, your problem is with God. (laughs) but every single one of us will stand before God so here Jesus makes sure we know that it takes one it takes you and then Jesus moves from here He goes, first he instructs, then he illustrates, and then he exhorts. From instruction to illustration to exhortation, now Jesus gives a challenge. A choice needs to be made by us in Matthew 5, 16a. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. Here's his challenge. He says, you're the light. Nobody else. I choose you. He says, now, let Your light shine before men in such a way that they will see your good works. And oftentimes, when you misinterpret this portion of Scripture, it becomes a contradiction. The the synthesis portion of exegetical teaching is is contradicted. You violate the Scriptures if you misinterpret this because now people go, oh, good works. We have to go feed the hungry, and we have to go over there to South Africa and our mother church in George and we have to go and hand out sandwiches and we must make sure everybody sees us handing out these sandwiches because as we do these good works people will see it and glorify our God. Well that's a misinterpretation because it doesn't it doesn't harmonize with the fact that you ought not to stand on the corners of the street and pound your chest over how good you are. Do you see the two who went to the temple to worship remember it was the tax collector and it was the Pharisee. The Pharisee says, God, thank, thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. Oh, thank you that I'm not like him. I'm so much better, I pay my tithe. And guess what? I also rest every seventh day of the week. Oh God, thank God I'm not like him. And the tax collector starts pounding his chest too. But he says, God, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. Have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. You see, these... Pharisees loved to walk proudly down the street with their tithe so everybody could see their good work. They loved to, to just, uh, uh, um, you know, express and proclaim how great they were. And if you read this out of context, you would, get, you would contradict Scripture. So what is it that you have to put on this lampstand What good works are these good works that you have to put on your lampstand so that everybody can see your good works and so glorify your God? I hope you followed what I just said. Like, you've got to make sure that you read the Scriptures accurately, otherwise you violate other Scriptures in your interpretation. And that's the fourth point of the five processes of exegetical study, which is what we do... Uh, We studied them in the midweek Bible discipleship class and I really want to encourage you next year, we're going to do that probably on Thursday nights for those of you who want to go through year one. All those who just went through the first year have an opportunity of going through a second year. But just to get back to this is how do I proclaim my good works without pounding my chest (laughs) and so glorify God? The word good in Greek is the word that means attractive. Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good, attractive. Another word is beautiful, that they may see your beautiful works, your attractive works. This is where the whole message of Sermon on, Sermon on the Mount revolves around is the beautiful attitudes, the be attitudes, the beautiful, attractive attributes and attitudes of of this profile that Jesus outlined in the beginning of His conversation. See, it's all one message. It's all one sermon Jesus gave. That, that whole portion of Scripture is one, is one thought that's congruent. Jesus didn't just keep on jumping ship from verse to verse. No, it's all one message. He says, here's the profile of a person and this person I'm telling you you are a light in this world and you have to shine your light in such a way that people will see your beautiful attractive works now we have to find out what these works are in the conclusion therefore it is that this is how to let your light shine so how do I put this work on a lampstand. What is this work that I have to elevate? What are these good deeds that make people, other people glorify the God that I serve? It is found within the profile of the person that he just identified. That person there, whatever that person did, is the works he's referring to that glorifies God if everybody sees them. Make sense? So let's read what it is. Matthew 5, 3, and 11. Here's the profile. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I can't tell you what it does to me every time I hear somebody talking about the poor. Blessed are the poor. It is is so far off. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Every commentary you read will tell you exactly what the original says about who this is. The poor in spirit are those who have declared spiritual bankruptcy. (laughs) They see no spiritual currency within themselves sufficient to purchase eternal life or right standing with God or blessings from His hand In any possible way, they are spiritually bankrupt. That's the poor in spirit. Blessed is that person who knows this about themselves. That is the first good work that when everybody sees that about you, they go, I glorify God. Have you not seen this for yourself when you watch somebody When somebody gets up there and they start talking about amazing grace that saved a wretched like me. People go, oh, praise God. You see, when somebody sees you identify that about yourself, it humbles them too. But if somebody can't identify that, and they'll sing the song only because... They like the melody, but they don't see themselves as wretched. No, no, no. They're way too good for that. They can't see themselves as that. They too lift it up within themselves. That brings no one to God. (laughs) That does not glorify God. That glorifies self. So Jesus very clearly says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who have declared spiritual bankruptcy, God, I have nothing to offer. I am a sinful man with a sinful nature. That person therefore completely relies and depends upon Christ to make them spiritually alive completely relies upon Christ to give them sufficient spiritual currency to even be compatible with the righteousness of God in any way they wear God's robes of righteousness in Christ then the second uh, the second characteristic of this person w- who shines his works His works before the world that causes the world to glorify His God is that Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Not those who mourn the loss of a loved one, but those who mourn their own sin. Blessed is that person. those who mourn their own sin and weep because they have violated the holiness of God blessed is that person can I just be honest with you why many people struggle to mourn their own sin and mourn their own sin nature and mourn the fact that they have fallen short of the glory of God you know why I don't say this is the number one reason but it's certainly one of the first three reasons, is they so hung up on somebody else's sin, they feel righteous in comparison. They are so justified, instead of mourning their own sin, they're angry over what somebody else did against them to the point where they can't even mourn themselves at all. They are just so infuriated over somebody else's injustice, they don't even recognize their own injustices. They don't recognize their own corruption. They don't recognize their own depravity. They don't recognize how just absolutely dead they are in their own sin. They can't even be thankful for what they've been forgiven because they will not be okay and they will not be happy until somebody else feels God's wrath because of what they did to me. But if we would take a step back and we would see just how fallen every single one of us are, and me included, and if we realize that at the end of the day, we don't stand before Christ as our group, we stand before Christ as an individual. And we will give an account for our individual, private, and personal lives and how we responded to the gospel and to the call to not just believe the gospel, but to proclaim and obey it. Now, we can come and run to Christ and say, I mourn. That's the second attribute of this beautiful attitude. The second attribute of this work That causes everybody else to glorify God when they see you, that you identify your poverty in spirit, and that they identify and they see how you mourn the loss of your innocence. The third, Jesus says, Blessed are the gentle, the meek, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek are those who willingly humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. They exercise great discipline. They exercise great self-control for the sake of God's glory in their lives. The meek doesn't, doesn't mean weak, of course. It means somebody that's, yeah, very strong, maybe very opinionated, maybe very stubborn. Nobody here like that. But maybe somebody very stubborn, willingly to say, I bow my knee. Jesus in all of His power bowed His knee because He was meek. Anybody in the world sees that about you, they can't help but glorify your God. The next is, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Of course, those are the ones who hunger and thirst for a righteousness, not of themselves, but the righteousness of God, which can only be found in Christ. They hunger for that. Oh God, that I may be covered with your righteousness because I don't look at myself to try and attempt to identify any kind of level of righteousness. And that's the other thing. People cannot, they are not thirsty for the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus because they feel themselves to be righteous in comparison to those who have hurt them. They feel themselves justified and right because look at how evil everybody else is therefore i am not that bad folks i don't know of another doctrine that makes christ necessary that makes christ that makes people desperate for believing in christ than the doctrine of radical corruption the doctrine of total depravity if, we, if people don't understand that, none of these beautiful ad- attributes could even be true of them. None. He who makes little of sin or he who makes small of sin makes little of his Savior. I mean, think about it. If I trivialize the sin in my life, I trivialize the one who saved me from it. Like, yeah, Jesus did good, but I mean, he didn't have to do all that much because I wasn't all that much of a sinner. (laughs) And so we see the next one is, Jesus said, blessed are the merciful Those who are so very aware of the amount of mercy God has shown him that they in turn naturally show mercy to others. It is a natural response to show mercy to others if in fact you're aware of just how much mercy you've received. That is an attractive, beautiful attitude, an attractive attitude. Beautiful attribute to the point where if people see you walk in that way, they will glorify your God. That is your good work. That is the good work of the person Jesus pointed to and said, you are the light. You merciful. Because you realize how much mercy you've received, you can't help but just show it. You are a light. And your works... That work will cause others to glorify your God. Jesus then says, Blessed are the pure in heart. Those whose hearts are undefiled with doubt. Those who who have their hearts set on God's promises without wavering. And then finally, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Those who incessantly share the gospel. When possible, they always love to share God's truth. They are light. They can't help but reveal truth in every scenario of life. The gospel is the only means by which a man man who is sin sick can be reconciled in peace to a holy and righteous God. And finally, blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted and who rejoice. Let me read it to you. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. For your reward in heaven is great. For your reward in heaven is great. Folks, Jesus gives us this challenge and He says make sure that those attributes, your admission of spiritual poverty, your mourning over the loss of your innocence, your willing submission. Watch this. Your willing submission to a verse in Scripture that you never saw it that way. Now you see it that way and you go, oh, I submit your willingness to do that. That attribute about you, that work is glorious. It shines a light and it makes people glorify God. When you hunger and you thirst, oh God, I want to be righteous. Not with my own righteousness, but with yours in Christ Jesus. I want to be merciful to all because you've been merciful to me. God, in Christ Jesus, beckons us, calls us to these works because it glorifies Him. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads.